miss the show, no worries on pointing on this podcast. Prime Minister finally taking a stand on China. It is certainly the bare minimum we can do. But he had little choice other than to stand with our allies. And, and the Trudeau government says it's taking a big leadership role on the world stage when it comes to this issue, which begs the question, if we're such leaders, why are our allies leaving us in the dust? Does the Great Resignation actually exist? Recent polling by Ipsos finds that a large number of us want to find new jobs in 2022 because we have no life-work balance. And this great resignation seems to be picking up traction, pushed into the spotlight by Prince Harry, who feels anyone who's had a joyless job should quit because it'll help their mental health issues. Well, easy for a rich guy to say that, but is it actually a thing? We will talk about that. Anti-Semitism on the rise all over the world, and yet here we are again. And the TDSB stunningly trying to censure a school trustee because she dared raise concerns about anti-Semitic literature that was given to teachers in the spring. The board admits it was anti-Semitic. Apparently, it's just not a Jewish trustee's place to call out Jew hate. Plus, she had nothing positive to say about the report because apparently there is something positive to be found in terror. And school lockdowns in Ontario add up to more than 20 weeks. But in the big picture, it is a huge loss of education for our kids and a number of parents across this country aren't just concerned about the kids' educational loss, but why are they not being caught up? A conversation that should have happened months ago. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. As a country, indeed, as many partners around the world, we are extremely concerned by the repeated human rights violations uh, by the Chinese government. That is why uh, we are announcing today that we will not be sending any diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympic Paralympic Games this winter. Our allies force our little potato to finally take a stand against China. Alex Pearson with you on this very, very uh, busy Wednesday, December the 8th. And here we go. We got the big news finally today. Prime Minister taking a stand against China because, like, he had no choice. Period. I mean, once the United States announced that uh, it would be doing this diplomatic boycott, it was just a matter of time before uh, we saw Australia and the UK sign on. And then, of course, the Trudeau government begrudgingly dragged itself to a mic and announced we will follow suit. And so now we wait and see if the remaining G7 countries will walk lock in step with us, which I suspect France, Italy, who else do we have? I can't remember. Uh, will uh, we'll join. Uh, so what does this mean? Well, we won't send any unknown diplomats who we wouldn't recognize anyway sitting in the stands and waving their little Canadian flag as the athletes walk by. Should it be a total boycott? Without question. Sadly. I don't want to punish the athletes, but, you know, there are certain times you stand up in the world, on the world stage, and I think this is one of those times, and it should have been done sooner. Uh, will this solve our problems with China? No. It will make them worse, because China's already promising payback, and we all know that China needs no excuse to be a thug. But certainly when all the allies stand together, it does send a, a symbolic message which is going to irritate the hell out of the thin-skinned dictator who has become a threat not just to us but to all Western democracies. So what we saw today was the bare minimum of what we can do. It's a symbolic 
up yours to a dictatorship that Trudeau once upon a time said he admired. I do wonder, and I wish someone would ask him, you know, if he has changed his stance on that admiration. Sadly, no one ever asks him. But it's uh, been his feckless inaction against this threat, you know, that tells me he either is still warm and fuzzy about the regime or maybe he's just terrified to do anything otherwise. So the question, you know, why did it take so long for them to announce this position of a boycott uh, that Mr. Trudeau knew was coming? You know, they keep saying, and, and it was a lot of their messaging today, that it's, you know, seized with these human rights issue. I mean, I don't, this is not human rights anymore. This is about a complete genocide that we have unequivocal proof is going on in these labor camps that have jailed one million Uyghur Muslims. I mean, we're talking fathers and mothers and children who are being tortured, children and babies being taken from their parents and put into indoctrination camps, women being sterilized. I mean, this is beyond human rights. And, you know, the regime doesn't see Muslim minorities as human at all. So this is a, a moral and ethical decision we had to make. But it certainly is the only decision Trudeau could have made today because otherwise he'd be condemned by our allies, which we very much need, but skewered by the opposition, which has been calling for the very least of a diplomatic boycott uh, for months. Here's Michael Chong. It's a statement of a belief in our principles, but it's, it alone is not enough, which is why we've called on the government to take many more measures uh, to counter the threats that China is presenting to our values and to our interests. That's why we've been calling for years now for the government to ban Huawei from our telecommunications network. It's why we've called on the government to put in place a robust plan to protect Canadian universities from intellectual property theft and national security breaches. It's why we've been calling on the government to work more multilaterally with our democratic allies in the Indo-Pacific region. All right. Well, he's not wrong. Um, and so the prime minister, you know, uh, was asked today, you know, what's the problem and how concerned are you about, you know, the, the retaliation? I mean, China has said that there's going to be a price to pay. I don't know what that means, but we don't, you know, when it comes to China, they play by their own rules. So it could just be anything. I mean, you just need to look to the Michaels of what happened to them or to the tennis star Peng Shuo, who we, of course, we can't talk to because she's being held by hostage. But Trudeau was asked about, you know, his concerns over the athlete's um, safety. Here's what he said. What retaliation do you fear from China vis-a-vis -vis Canada for this decision? I don't think the decision by Canada or by many other countries uh, to choose to not send uh, diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympics and Paralympics is going to come as a surprise to China. We have been very clear uh, over the past mm -hmm. many years of our deep <laughs> concerns around human rights violations. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. You've been anything but clear on China. And that's why they kick us around. I mean, his his approach to China has been like a noodle. And it's emboldened the regime, which, you know, today would have been a great day to let China know, hey, by the way, we don't want to go to your games, but you can take Huawei and shove it. But I, I suspect that decision is going to get kicked further down the road out of concern for the athlete's safety. But it is a decision that should have had you know, been made years ago alongside with our Five Eye partners who no longer even include Canada in strategic alliances. I mean, they just don't see the clarity that Justin Trudeau insists his government has had in dealing with China. And so our athletes, will they be safe? I, I guess. I hope so. Um, they'll have an RCMP detail to watch over them. 
But I sure do hope that no one going over has said as much as a peep about this regime because we all know what happens to critics. And Melanie Jolie, who is our, what, fifth foreign minister of affairs in five years, uh, she came out today and, you know, no one bothered to ask her about Huawei, uh, but she was peppered with questions and spun out nothing but this nonsense. And Canada has been playing a leadership role on this. So this is just in line with our foreign policy regarding the fact that Canada always stands up on questions of human rights. And more than that, we are coordinating with our allies to continue to have more countries to send a strong message. Oh boy, you know, Canada's taking a leadership role on this. I don't know what planet that woman is on. I literally can't take anything she says seriously. I just can't. Melanie Jolie has zero business in this role, and I find it actually quite frightening that she's the woman tasked now on the biggest uh, geopolitical threats that we've seen in our lives. I mean, she is in no way qualified. Um, because when you ask me what leadership is, what she seems to fantasize about, to me, leadership would be a total boycott. Leadership would have been uh, standing up with Hong Kong, not abandoning it, making very clear to China that we stand with Taiwan. You know, leadership would be diversifying Canada's trade away from China as soon as possible and not increasing it by 25%, which happened this year alone. Uh, leadership would be kicking out the Chinese ambassador who continually threatens this country on an ongoing basis on Canadian soil and whose latest threat came yesterday. When he told us, oh, we should have learned a lesson with Meng Wanzhou when it comes to our decision on Huawei. And leadership on human rights would have actually seen Melanie Jolie and her government condemn China for committing what is a very obvious genocide. And yet she and her colleagues didn't even bother to show up for the vote brought forward by the opposition. So pardon me if I choke on this notion that Canada has been a leader on anything when it comes to the world stage, especially China. I mean, Canada's not back. We have been turned into a bloody disgrace on the world stage, which is why our allies, be it the Five Eyes or NATO, they just simply ignore us now. So I'm glad to see this baby step. But does it go far enough? No. I mean, at some point, Trudeau and this completely unqualified foreign affairs minister is going to have to take the leadership they boast about on China. And the sooner, the better. For all of, all of our sakes. Great to have you here with us. So have you heard about the great resignation yet? Because you will. Um, and certainly now that it's been thrust into the spotlight, thanks to the words of one Prince Harry who took to the air and said, anyone who has a joyless job should quit for the well-being of their mental health, which, of course, is easy for him to do because he uh, said his comments sitting in a $20 million home. You know, the rest of us actually need a paycheck to pay the bills. But is there any actual merit to this? Because without question, the pandemic has changed the way we do everything. I mean, including work. Because it's forced, I think, most of us to reflect on things like work-life balance. Are we actually happy with what we're doing? Do we make enough money? And polling done by Ipsos for Randstad Recruitment Agency suggests that over 60% of Canadian companies are now preparing for some kind of employee exodus in 2022. And according to the polling, employees now have all the power. We are at the steering wheel because we now know that there's flexibility, that we can actually work productively from home and don't always need to go to the office. And if you look at the numbers, Ipsos finds that 43% of Canadians say they are going to look for more work in 2022. 62% of those 
uh, looking for work will be 18 to 34-year-olds, but a a pretty high number, 48% of those age 35 to 54 um, also will be looking for possible new employment. And of course, when you look at the breakdown, why? Uh, Younger groups want money, but a lot of them said they have to have an option of going to work or staying at home, or they might just quit and go elsewhere. So at the end of the day, it's easy to tell a pollster you want to quit. It's a whole other issue of actually walking out the door unless you are rich like Prince Harry. Let me bring Patrick Poulin into this conversation, Group President of Randstead Recruitment and HR Agency. Good to have you, Patrick. Good evening, Alex. All right. So um, when did this movement start? Is this a result of the pandemic? Is this an emotional kind of trigger where people are burning out, tired, forced to kind of, you know, in, you know, as we sit and stare at our walls where people were like, I'm not happy, I got to start reflecting on my life. Like, where did this start out of? I think it started like a little bit before the pandemic, though, like in 2019, we've seen that we've seen some in some areas, some labor shortage happening already. But since the pandemic, definitely, we've seen like in the peak of the economy, like across not only the country, but also across the world, like with the return of the economy, like we've seen there that, okay, that's when like the, the, the shortage came out like even higher. And we've mm-hmm. seen that the employees like were really looking like to elsewhere, like or to better jobs, like to change. So, so I would say since the beginning of the year, we've seen big changes happening. Right. And, and we have seen, obviously, you mentioned the uh, labor shortage across this country. This country, this is having a massive uh, impact on businesses, uh, which now, um, you know, really are struggling to find people. They're having to, you know, offer more money, um, kind of, it's like the, the employee has the power all of a sudden to make the demands. And if uh, employees want, um, you know, people to work, they're going to have to offer this. But, you know, what is the number? I mean, what is the reality? It's one thing to say you're going to quit is another thing to actually do it. But Canadian companies are preparing. What is it that you think is going to, what, what's this seismic shift look like? Yeah, I would say that, like, again, we see uh, like about 45% of the people, close to 45% of the people are still looking for, for a new job. Everyone, since they're sitting, the job seekers are sitting in the driver's seat right now. And we see that for them, it's to get like a better job at the end, but not only on the salary side, but better like benefits, better flexibility at work. So those are the things that the people are even more sitting down and saying, okay, so what do I want to do? So let's look at, and for sure, like most of the people are getting approached like uh, by many companies as well, because like we, we see that like many comp- companies are desperate, like uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, desperately looking for people. So that's the reason why like we see more and more the people saying, OK, asking themselves the question like, OK, what should I do? What should I do? Should I just go and look and see what's elsewhere in the market? So we see that more and more in, uh, in yeah. the business right now. Yeah. And certainly it, it depends on what your situation is. If you've got a family or kids to feed or whatever, if you're young and you don't have any, um, you know, real responsibilities outside of yourself, then you'll have more options. Um, yep. You know, let's look at the sectors of, let's say, hospitality and tourism, which got hit and devastated, uh, you know, and still yep. haven't recovered. Um, yep. You know, I understand that, you know, if you've been shut out of that kind of business, it's a good push to say, okay, so what do you want to do? This is a time now to build skills and maybe kind of direct yourself into something that you've really dreamed about. Um, that it has a, a bit more stability. But 
what are you seeing? Is it that people want um, stability? Is it lifestyle? Like, what are they looking for? And, and are industries like uh, hospitality, restaurant, are they ever going to come back to what we had before? Yeah, like it's, I think the market will just stabilize at some point as well. It, it'll go back. It, it, it's going to balance out a little bit. Like for sure, unfortunately for the employers, it's a little bit tougher. But right now, uh, unfortunately, like on the hospitality side, on the retail retail side, they have been hit quite hard, like with the whole pandemic. Mm. And like So for sure for them, when we look at it, attracting people and to tell them that they're going to get like it's a steady job they're going to get like a, a lot of security it's a little bit harder that's the reason why we've seen a little bit of people like just moving out from that space and going to other industry to make sure that they were getting those like more security side of the jobs that they wanted to have but definitely the salary remains the first thing every single year. It's been over 10 years that we do studies every year. And the salary, Alex, is always the first thing that the people are looking at when they want to change their job, always, most of the time. Yeah, and and unique, I think, to the situation now is that it's not just salary, but people want to be able to negotiate, okay, I don't want to have to come to the office. I don't want to have to pay for parking or transit. I don't want to spend two hours in the car. So here's the deal. You can pay me maybe a little less, but I want to work from home. So those negotiations can actually happen. Definitely. And as an employer, you need to be open to that because flexibility today, and we, we never thought about this, like before the pandemic, saying like, Mm-hmm. Hey, most of our employees will work from home now and like the setup will completely change like in the, the way of working. But now today, this is the reality, the reality right now. And we see that like companies, they don't have any choice to adapt to this new reality. They need to offer, like I said, salary yeah. is the first thing. But again, you need as a company to be like to be able to offer a good flexibility package to the people saying, okay. So is it full time from home or is it like two or three days from home? So we see the appetite of the, the job seekers really to have a balance between the two. So that's the reason why the companies need to, to adapt through this. And, and you, you guys are on the front line. So you would be the yeah. ones posting the jobs. You see what people are coming in for. You see kind of the trends before the trends start to appear in the labor force. Patrick, when you see a young person or even, I mean, because the, the ages break down to 18 to 34 or 35 to 54 um, who are looking, no matter what you do when you leave a job, chances are you're not going to go into the same thing. So are you uh, telling younger people you've got to be able to build the skills? Are they willing to put the work in to go change their life? Or are they expecting, okay, we've got all the power now. Uh, this is what I want. I mean, there, there have to be skills brought in. Exactly. And, and on this, we still need to be careful. Huh? As a job seeker, we need to be careful in the way that we change up and the way that we do it as well. And I think it's important to still be very transparent with your current employer if you're getting approached by other companies, which, like, mm-hmm. again, we see that very often, I think it's really important to maintain a very transparent com- conversation with, with your employer. Just saying, okay, right. by the way, just to make sure that we're, you're able, it's always better, like, when we look at other jobs, it seems very appealing. It seems very, like, oh, it's going to be so nice to go there. But, again, sitting down with your current employer and looking at, okay, what kind of training, what else could you uh, give me to help me out in, in growing my career within the company that they're working on? 
That's the kind of thing that we suggest still. Because again, we never know eh? with the market, mm. like when it's going to go back to normal, like we might see some companies doing like changes and like letting go people at the end. Yeah. So we need to be careful in the way that we do it. And, uh, and as well, I can say one, one thing as well is that if I'm like the younger generation, I might want to look like what the company has to offer me in terms of uh, upskilling, like my, my, yeah. my like learning that I had, like uh, what they can bring me to, to build my career and to have a stronger like a footprint in what I do and doing other respons- having other responsibilities as well. So that's the kind of thing that we suggest that we do uh, for a job. Yeah, season. I mean, not necessarily walk in and say, here's what I want. I mean, I mean, you know, if you can get and, and find, you know, tune uh, your, your, your opportunities for job growth, um, yep. you know, skills training, all those things are, are really valuable, even though it doesn't seem like it at the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. as long as you continue moving forward. So if you were to put your Kreskin hat on uh, and do a little fortune telling, um, do you see this as this, this great resignation as a, a movement or, or kind of just a, a buzzing trend? I mean, you've obviously never seen, I don't think we've seen the climate that we have in this country as far as labor shortages like this for, for yeah, many, I many think, decades. But yeah. And I think like until we see the economy slowing down a bit, mm. I think it's still going to stay, unfortunately, with this. Because, and again, like we look at, like the economy a little bit, where the the country is going with the with the economy. I think yeah. 2022 remains quite high uh, with the inflation. When we look at it, like so, unfortunately for 2022, it's still going to be very present. I think uh, when the economy will balance out, I think it's going to help out uh, with <laughs> having like the people like staying more. And working more like at their current job and making sure that they, they they're staying happy at what they do currently. Yeah, but on the other side, though, I think it's a good learning for employers today because we've seen the shortage mm-hmm. happening, like I said, before the pandemic, and it's a good learning for the all the employers saying work with your current employees first, work with your branding first, make sure that you make them happy and you invest in your like employees for their career. That's a good, great learning that everyone has to understand here. Give and take. It is give and take. Patrick, very much appreciate this. We'll see what uh, this brings. And boy, oh boy, I guess you guys will be busy for a while then. Oh, yeah, (laughs) we will. Not a bad thing. Thank you, Patrick, very much. That's uh, Patrick Poulin, who's the uh, group president of Randstad uh, Recruitment. And um, yeah, they have a lot of job postings that they are dealing with right now, but certainly uh, talking and giving advice and stuff on skills training and, uh, you know, job growth. So here we go again. The TDSB once again getting international headlines, this time because the board has decided to tried and censure a school trustee because she dared raise concerns on Twitter last spring about a manual being sent to teachers that she said had anti-Semitic content inside. The school trustees, now look, they're elected, so censuring is the harshest penalty that can be handed out. But what is Alexandra Wolka's offense? Why was she being singled out? Well, the complaint against this trustee stems back to an incident that took place in May during the Israeli 11-day conflict with Hamas and uh, Palestine. 
And a member of the board's gender-based violence unit distributed this 51-page anti-Israel manual to teachers who requested it. And of course, the booklet discusses Palestine and colonization by Israel, suggesting that, uh, well, also reading material on BDS. So that member was temporarily removed. But in the report, the Integrity Commissioner agreed that, yes, some of the material promoted terror and anti-Semitism. But the, true, the, the trustee didn't talk about the positive things in the report. Yes, apparently you're supposed to find positives in terror, but Woko was actually speaking on behalf of many in the Jewish community who were absolutely outraged by the material they were seeing. So why is she in trouble? Well, according to the board, it's not her job to call out Jew hate. It's the board's responsibility. The problem is the board never seems to call it out. Avi Ben Lolo joining me now, founder and chairman of the Abraham Lolo Peace Initiative. Good to have you. Well, thank you for having me, Alex. It's always a pleasure. Well, I know, but this is becoming a recurring theme when it comes to the biggest <laughs> board in this country, where they're on the wrong side of history. It's not that you can't criticize Israel. That is completely fair. That's not anti-Semitic. But I think a Jew, which this trustee is, would know anti-Semitism when she sees it. Yes, of course. And um, look, she called out anti-Semitism and she was right to do it. Um, you know, unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, at the board level, um, both um, Jewish trustees, Jewish teachers and even Jewish students have been um, speaking out and complaining um, that they feel marginalized, that they themselves are beginning to feel uncomfortable because of the board's position and, and many statements that have been made by you know, other board members and by speakers that the board has, has brought on that has made them feel like, in fact, um, you know, there is anti-Semitism. And that is a, a concern to them as well. Well, yeah, and I think um, one of the references you were you're making is to, um, I guess, a talk that Desmond Cole, uh, who's a Toronto activist, was brought in to talk about anti-Black racism uh, issues and went on a pretty, uh, you know, long tirade using things like free Palestine and, and delving into, again, an issue that really should not be something that is is talked about in the boards because it's not relevant to, to the information, but nonetheless, he went on this diatribe unchallenged and offended a whole number of uh, Jews who were listening to what is, uh, you know, a kind of disguised uh, dog whistle when it comes to anti-Semitism. Yes, that's right. And that uh, that shook many of us in the community when you watch the video and you listen to it. Um, it's quite disconcerting because, you know, the subject matter was was not that and the board had uh, not uh, not brought him in to speak about, um, you know, Israel or the Middle East conflict. And so once again, what happened was that, um, you know, uh, board members and Jewish faculty were left feeling uh, fairly marginalized. And the issue, of course, is that, um, you know, people within the board, both, you know, involved in, and on the periphery, you know, are using lingo, you know, calling Israel a, a colonial state or, you know, practicing apartheid, which are, you know, both fallacies or, or even to the extent of genocide, of committing genocide, which is, you know, unbelievable, uh, considering that, uh, you know, there's a Syria, there's a, there's a genocide in Syria, mm -hmm. um, you know, where Bashar al-Assad murdered half a million of his own people and no one says a peep. Well, there's a genocide um, not, going on in China that no one seems to be able to admit either. 
Exactly, exactly. And no, no, nobody talks about it. And, and so, you know, these double standards continue to happen. And of course, you know, um, you know, people who are pro-Israel and, and, and Jewish and, and so forth, uh, not only Jewish, uh, I've had many people who are not Jewish who have called me, um, you know, very, very concerned about it, say, saying, look, um, you know, this is all skewed and it's uh, much of it is bordering on anti-Semitism. And we are starting to feel very uncomfortable at what they see as the institutionalization or even normalization of, you know, anti-Jewish uh, sentiment, we'll call it that, um, you know, at the, at the board level, in the education system. And that is, is really, really dangerous. When you start having, um, you know, any form of racism and hatred, um, you know, institutionalized and making people feel uncomfortable, um, that is a very dangerous thing when it happens, especially at the board level. Yeah, I mean, I've got lots of nieces and, and nephews who are still in, in high school, and they tell me stories that I'm stunned by. I wish, I wish, you know, um, you know, the Jewish kids going into bathrooms, being cornered, being kind of hunted out by uh, other classmates, and, and it's growing um, more and more, um, and mm-hmm. they don't feel like they can talk out. I mean, if we have a trustee who spoke out against Muslim hate or gay hate uh, or any form of, of hate, I'm not sure we'd be having this discussion. Is it that they don't understand anti-Semitism? Do they not understand that anti-Semitism is is going up, you know, rapidly around the world? And in this city, there are attacks every day that are underreported. But do they not see it, or do they not understand it? Right, and those are those are by the way. <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and you know, those are important questions because we're asking the exact same question, you know, my organization is, is demanding that the TDSB, um, you know, immediately put into action a, a model that fights anti-Semitism, that creates more awareness about it, that educates students about what it means, um, you know, that this allows things like, you know, a walkout um, you know, where students, um, you know, held signs saying free Palestine and from the river to the sea, Israel, mm-hmm. uh, Palestine will be free, which is really a call to genocide against against Israel. And so and so, you know, what we're advocating for, of course, is that there is greater awareness, greater sensitivity to combat anti-Semitism. The TDSB, for some reason, um, doesn't want to see it. They, they, they don't, you know, the, the, the expressions that are coming out of, of uh, statements are not, are not congruent really with, with what the reality that's happening on the ground. Um, and that is, you know, that is, that is really a, a big concern for us. Well, it should be a concern. I mean, if this Jewish trustee um, who is speaking out about Jew hate ends up getting censured for it, mm-hmm. she's an elected official. Uh, we've got bigger problems, I think, in this uh, country and in this school board than we understand. But let me ask you this, Avi. I mean, is there a growing um, concern in the Jewish community that if kids speak out against this kind of stuff or when they have incidents that they'll either be ignored or punished? I mean, is that kind of a growing unspoken conversation? Yeah, well, look, in, in this case, I mean, the fact that you have a trustee that was censored, um, uh, of course, you know, it, it really um, creates... Uh, an atmosphere where people are afraid to speak their mind. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with her, you know, being an elected mm-hmm. official expressing, you know, a point of view that also represents who, who she is 
and also speaks on behalf of her community and her lived lived history and lived story. That there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, um, someone, uh, you know, you see that all the time. People of, of different walks and backgrounds and faiths speaking on behalf of their communities, and that's and that's perfectly fine. And they're never ever censored. In the case, the fact that she's Jewish and being censored, while people who are, you know, um, saying false narratives calling Israel an apartheid state and colonial and so forth, um, they're not being censored. Um, something is completely wrong with the system. Stay tuned. I'm sure it's not the last story, but it certainly is alarming that we have to keep talking about this, but we'll see what happens with the uh, results of the vote on this. Very much appreciated, Avi. Well, thank you very much for covering this, Alex. That is Avi Ben-Lola, who is the chairman of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, just one of the many, many Jewish groups, uh, including those over in Israel, which I've noticed this kind of crap going on, and they're saying, what on earth is going on in Canada? So we'll follow that. All right, great to have you here with us. So as we head into the holidays, no question there's a growing concern for parents that uh, maybe we won't return. Maybe there'll be more Restrictions. Maybe there'll be school closures. Who knows where the hysteria will take us? I mean, the Ford government said schools won't close again, but they also said that before. And we had the longest school closures in the country, forcing, of course, millions of kids online and into a world of chaos and confusion with parents playing teacher, trying to do their own jobs. And of course, the kids all staring off into space and not learning anything. Well, a new study from Fraser Institute did polling with Alegi, finding that one in five parents say their kids are behind. 20% are more concerned that the schools have no plan to catch the kids up. And when you look at the numbers nationally, 70% of parents say their kids are falling behind. Maybe you don't see it as a big deal, but the true data on this will not be felt for years. Paige McPherson is Associate Director of Education Policy for the Fraser Institute, who dug into this data. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Kids um, lost, at least in Ontario, <laughs> over 20 weeks of school. Um, that's years of education when you actually add it up in the bigger picture. I'm surprised your numbers actually aren't higher. Well, when you look at the numbers, so that one in five number uh, are parents in Ontario who feel that their child has fallen behind and that their child's school has no plan to catch them up. So that's that 20%. But when you look at parents who say that to some extent their child has fallen behind, whether they've fallen behind a lot um, or whether they're not confident that the school has, um, has a plan to catch them up, or some parents say, you know, we are more confident in the school, but our child has fallen behind a little bit. Um, taking into account all of those parents who say that their child has fallen behind to some degree, it's almost 80% of parents in Ontario. So almost 80% are saying, okay, there's some learning loss that have happened um, with my child here. So that one in five are, are the ones who, you know, have the, the most dramatic reaction. They're the ones who say, yes, my, my child has fallen behind and no, I'm not confident that the school has a plan to catch them up. But when you're looking at the bigger picture, a lot of kids, according to their parents, have fallen behind. 
Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to my own situation and our son was so far behind. And when I found out that the schools were not going to be redoing the curriculum, um, you know, in his grade of elementary class, I mean, we had to make a decision. And ultimately, it was to take him out of public and put him in an independent school so he could get that one on one learning. But parents, you know, a lot of parents can't do that. A lot of parents won't do that. But when you, you know, if you don't create the foundation, especially, let's say, in the elementary years, these kids are just going to keep falling behind, you know. And the, pr the problem is, and I think why we're not seeing or hearing more outrage is because the learning loss of these generations of kids won't be felt for years because they'll just keep falling behind and behind and behind. Yeah, so the compounding effect of having the learning loss and then, you know, let's say in a math class, not learning the foundational skills that you need in that year, going on to the next year, not having that knowledge is going to make uh, learning the, the a more advanced material more difficult. Certainly the, the impacts, um, if this is not addressed by mm -hmm. the Ontario government or other provincial governments uh, or the schools themselves, um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that this is going to, to not be a short-lived impact for kids. This is going to be something that uh, is going to be quite long-term. And it's interesting that you say that about uh, independent schools, um, that, you know, you've made the choice that some other parents have made to, to make that shift. But as you say, this is not an option for everyone. And for so many parents who do it, tremendous sacrifices are involved. And, and that's particularly acute in Ontario because five out of 10 provinces, every province east of New Brunswick, other than Ontario, actually offers a level of educational choice to families by allowing yeah. some of parents' tax dollars to follow them to the school of their choice. Um, if that's an independent school, then it will follow their child to that school, uh, which in turn can make independent school more affordable. Whereas in Ontario and where I live in Atlantic Canada, a lot of children um, attend their local public school and that's really the only option that's mm -hmm. affordable to them or available to them. And when we look into this data, the only province um, where we didn't have that extreme level of concern that I mentioned from parents, where parents um, feel that their child has fallen behind and that their school has no plan to catch them up, that was about one in five across the country. Um, but except in BC, BC, it was one in 10. And mm -hmm. uh, BC does have that educational choice policy in place that makes independent school more affordable to parents. Uh, but it also has um, the highest rate of independent school attendance in Canada. And one other point that we found related to this um, in the polling is that parents in independent schools felt that there was less of an impact or that their school had it under control for their child more so than parents in public schools. This is nationally. So 84% of parents with children in independent schools across the country say that their child's education was either minimally impacted um, or that their child is behind a little, um, but they have a plan, the school has a plan to catch them up due to the pandemic and the related government policies. So that's 84% um, of parents uh, of kids in independent schools compared to 64 parents, 64%, excuse me, of parents in public schools. So that's a, that is a significant difference. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, I'll be working forever um, because it does take sacrifice to do it. But, you know, the reason we had to ultimately choose was because the independent schools are or were, in our case, doing large parts of the curriculum over again and not just simply pushing the kids through um, because that's how much education they, they had lost. 
Um, sadly, um, you know, I don't know when we're going to see any movement on this. I mean, the kids are already halfway through the year. There is no conversation happening at all, Paige, about getting the kids caught up. I mean, I think what we're seeing now, at least in the Ontario school boards, is that uh, the teachers and schools are just trying to, you know, patchwork together what they can and then just kind of keep pushing them through. But I don't, I mean, the time for the conversations we're having now should have been had a long time ago. That they have it, I think, is extremely, um, you know, um, alarming. Mm-hmm. And and when we're looking at, you know, the policies that are related to the pandemic, you know, a lot of people say, oh, this is because of COVID. But realistically, um, this is the government's response to COVID. This is how governments chose to manage it. And in Ontario, where we do have um, the large proportion of parents that feel that their child is behind a lot or feel that their child is behind and their school has no plan to catch them up, you know, schools were closed, as you said, you know, longer than any other province in the country. So specifically between March 14th, 2020 and May 15th, 2021, Ontario closed K-12 schools for a total of 20 weeks. And that does not include closures that are mandated by individual schools, mandated by school districts. I know here in Nova Scotia, where I live, you know, if you're, if there is an exposure, um, in a class, if one student has has been exposed to COVID in a class, the whole class shuts down, goes virtual um, for a week. Now, depending on the grade level, that virtual learning may or may not be very successful for those students. Um, so we are yeah. still seeing, you know, whether it's individual class closures or individual school closures or regional school closures, there are still a lot of interruptions to student Mm. learning going on so when we're you know talking about having these conversations about um addressing the the learning loss that has happened I think that's something that as you've said you know there really is a void we haven't heard a lot of solutions on this from school administrators from um from the government but also talking about okay how can we avoid learning loss in the future Well, it's not a one-size-fits-all problem, but certainly, as you know, government only ever has a plan for one size, so we're all going to pay a price for this. Paige, very much appreciate it. I know that you will be digging into a lot of research over the next few years in this area. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Paige McPherson joining us here with the newest data on that with the Fraser Institute. And it will change a lot over the next coming years, I don't think for the better. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting at 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is on Global News Radio.